Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about a new way of thinking about sexual orientation. Sexual orientation is often viewed only through the lens of attraction to others based on their sex or gender, and it is often conflated with sexual identity. By taking a multidimensional view of sexual orientation, however, we can potentially gain a much greater understanding of human sexuality. We're going to explore something called sexual configurations theory, which offers a new way of understanding and measuring sexual diversity. We're going to be discussing what this theory is and a new study that uses it to help us better understand how all of our sexual interests come together. In particular, we'll be talking about the degree to which people's sexual turn-ons overlap and diverge across sexual fantasy, pornography use, and in-person sexual behavior. It turns out that all of these things tell us something unique about our sexuality, which means we can't just assume that sexual interests in one context transcend other contexts. I'm joined today by two amazing guests, Aki Gormizano and Dr. Sari Van Anders. Aki is a PhD candidate in social and personality psychology at Queen's University in Canada. Sari is a professor of psychology, gender studies, and neuroscience, also at Queen's University, and is the Canada 150 Research Chair in Social Neuroendocrinology, Sexuality, and Gender Sex. Sari has published over 90 academic papers that set out new ways to conceptualize, understand, and map sexual and gender diversity. I can't wait for this conversation, so let's dive right in. Hi, Aki, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for that introduction and for having me. Very excited to be here. I am excited to have you here, and hello, Sari. Thank you so much for joining me as well. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I am so looking forward to discussing your research, but before we dive into all of that, I'd like to ask both of you to tell us a little bit about your professional backstory. So, Aki, can you tell us what drew you to sex research in the first place? So, how did you discover that this was something you wanted to go to school for, and you're going through that very arduous process of getting your PhD right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm sure I could spend the whole podcast talking about this, but I'll, I'll try and keep it relatively succinct. I think for me, when figuring out what I really wanted to study, it was thinking about the questions that I found most compelling. And so I, I did a good amount of social psych as an undergraduate student and was peripherally exposed to some sexuality research, especially that related to pornography use, which I always found really interesting for whatever reason. So when I had the chance to do extra readings related to that, I would. And so much of the research that I found seemed to be focused on looking at pornography use as a causal agent that impacts in-person sexuality. So does pornography use cause often negative changes in sexual attitudes or even potentially in sexual interests? And my initial reaction to that was like, gosh, I wonder, like, what else is going on here? Like, like, is there, is there more to pornography use than just thinking about it as something that impacts something else? Like what's going on with pornography use in particular? And that was really the starting point. And I, I think in terms of developing into what I would call a, a full-fledged sexuality researcher, not that I'm fully there yet, was being exposed to sexual configurations theory, which I imagine Sari will talk about a bit more in a second, and just really feeling like my mind was expanding and like I was just seeing so many things in a different light. And that gets me kind of to who I am today and what I'm interested in. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm very glad to have you in the field because you are answering and addressing very important and compelling questions that I think a lot of people are curious about. And, you know, honestly, that's why I do what I do. It's because it is endlessly fascinating to me. And I have all of these questions that no one's ever really attempted to address before. So there's just this never ending stream of interesting things to study in our field. So, Sari, let me ask you the same question. What brought you to the field of sex research? I know you've been in the field a bit longer now, and you've studied a lot of different things. It's all fascinating, and you're always blowing my mind <laughs> with what you're doing. But tell us a little bit about how you got into the field. Oh, well, thanks. I think in some ways, in retrospect, it feels very linear. When I was in high school, I was somehow, I asked and was allowed to teach the sex ed to the younger grades, you know, that health component. And so I did that for two years. And in undergrad, I also did some sex ed, like pure sex ed at the university. But I never really thought I was going to study it. I was really interested in gender and sex, like the dividing line between those two. And I was really interested in evolution and feminism, which seemed very opposite at the time. And sort of then from that got interested in hormones. And then, you know, as soon as you're studying a hormone like testosterone, sexuality kind of comes up pretty quickly. And so sort of kind of circled back a, a lot to sexuality. And now it's definitely one of the main things I study. Well, thank you for sharing that as well. And I think it's interesting how you mentioned that you have the interest in evolution and feminism, because I know so many people who feel like you can only study one or the other. And I had Lisa Diamond as a guest on the podcast a while ago, and she studies things from both of those perspectives as well. And so I just, I think it's worth pointing out that these are not mutually exclusive things. And by combining from these different perspectives, I think we can really gain a much richer understanding of a lot of things. Now, before we turn to your recent research, which I find to be absolutely fascinating, let's step back for a second and talk about how you conceptualize sexual orientation. So as I mentioned, I recently did an episode of the show with Lisa Diamond, and we talked a lot about sexual orientation and how researchers' understanding of it has changed over time. And historically, it was primarily discussed in terms of patterns of sexual attraction based on sex or gender, but increasingly, scientists are looking at it as multidimensional. Now, Sari, Lisa name-dropped you in that episode as being someone who is really influential in the way that she thinks about sexual orientation, and she specifically mentioned sexual configurations theory, which is something you developed. So can you give us the brief version of how do you define the concept of sexual orientation and what is this theory you developed? What does it try to do? Yes. And Lisa's work really informed my work. So it's always so nice to hear. Okay. So as you said, people kind of thought about sexual orientation as focusing on sexual attractions. And sometimes I kind of joke it was like a genital matchup, like what are your genitals relative to the genitals of those you're attracted to? But of course, we, we know that many people's attractions have nothing to do with genitals at all, or a genital matchup in any way. And we also, one of the things I talk about with sexual configurations theory or SCT is this, um, and that other people use as well as this sort of tripartite model. So identity, orientation, and status. And identity being sort of who you are, what your labels are, what your politics and communities are. Orientation being, you know, your attractions, your arousals, and so on. And status being like what you're doing and with whom and in what ways. And those can all be branched. So we use the word branched because people kind of assume those all 
lined up or aligned. And there is actually, when you think about what the opposite of alignment is, that's misalignment. Or people sort of thought of it as almost a problem when those don't align. And so we use the language of branched or coincident rather than alignment, non-alignment or misalignment to try to really get into our heads that like, you know, identities, status and orientations sometimes coincide and oftentimes don't. And even within those, so, you know, orientations themselves can be, you know, who you're attracted to, what you're aroused by, what you want, what you like. Those are not necessarily the same thing either. Those can branch. So you can be aroused by the thought of engaging in threesomes. You can like sex with one other person and not multiple people. And those might be different kinds of things. So sexual configurations theory gives us some language and some ways to think about that in relation to gender sex sexuality. So the gender sexes of people, because for many people, that's important. Some people are attracted to men. Some people are attracted to people of any gender. Some people are attracted to people who are feminine, regardless of their bodies or legal identities. Some people are attracted to certain kinds of bodies, regardless of who has them. And we also talk about partner number sexuality. So whether you want to be sexual with anyone at all or not, which some people don't, asexual people and others, whether you're being sexual with multiple people, uh, with one other person, and then also this branchedness and coincidence that For example, demisexual people talk about between nurturance and eroticism. Like, do you feel nurturantly connected to some people? Maybe you have nurturant interests in women, but you're interested in being erotically sexual and you're interested in being erotically sexual with men or people of any gender. So we see a lot of branchedness and coincidence in SCT that there's no natural way for things to line up and that we're just interested in how sexuality plays out in all those ways. Yeah, and so it sort of brings in a whole bunch of different aspects of sexuality that historically people have kind of talked about as being totally different, but it puts it all under this same umbrella. And so you can kind of locate where you are in the context of all of these broader interests. And so in this way, it brings in interest in polyamory and open relationships into the same space as your attractions based on sex gender and also other attractions and interests and patterns of arousal that you might have. So I like your theory a lot in the sense that it's kind of this all-encompassing thing that can help us to kind of understand how all of these different aspects of our sexuality fit together. So thank you for the hard work you did in developing that model. And thank you for explaining it clearly, because I think Sometimes it is hard to wrap your mind around it because there are so many things. And when you see like the visual representation of your model, it's kind of like this vortex, like <laughs> kind of like this hurricane of some sort of like all of your sexual interests going on at the same time. And I love it. It's just, it's a little harder to wrap your head around than just the traditional way of thinking about sexual orientation. It's just, are you into men, women, both, neither, and so forth. So Aki, in your new study, You focus on how different aspects of sexuality intersect, including porn use, fantasy, and in-person behavior. And as you mentioned in your paper, many researchers have made the assumption that people's sexual interests are the same across all of these contexts. And so they just study one or another, and they use these terms interchangeably to some degree. But before we get into exactly what you found in the study, can you just step back and tell us a little bit about why you think it's problematic to take that approach? So why is it problematic to just assume that what people look for in, say, porn necessarily reflects their fantasies and their real-life behaviors as well? So what was kind of like the starting point or impetus for you wanting to look at how all of these things intersect and diverge? Yeah, thanks, Justin. That's a great question. 
I don't know if this is true for you, but I often find that starting with analogies related to food can be really helpful for explaining things related to sexuality. So I'll try one of those. If it doesn't land, maybe we can try again. You can talk about food anytime. (laughs) Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you for making the space for that. So I, I think about it kind of like if you were to assume that the same things that people might want to eat for dinner, depending on their dietary preferences and morals, like, you know, for dinner, sometimes people want to eat hamburgers or steaks. And assuming that that is the same sort of thing that people are interested in eating right when they wake up for breakfast, whereas people might be more inclined to something light like cereal, Cheerios, bacon, eggs, You know, just like assuming that somebody wakes up, rolls out of bed, and then wants a steak or a hamburger seems like a bit of a leap. So what happens in research a good amount of the time is, you know, by 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 virtue of the fact that studying what people are attracted to in person can be somewhat somewhat difficult and intensive and tricky. A lot of researchers will use, say, pornography as sexual stimuli in studies and use that to make inferences about what people are attracted to in person. And in ways, and, and sometimes this can make a lot of sense, except for the times in which it might not, where my sense coming into this research was perhaps pornography is a different enough context or situation that people are interested in different things. Same with sexual fantasy, where there's just different constraints there and potentially different things that people are interested in. So we wanted to explore whether there is branching or branchedness between these different contexts, between fantasy, porn, and in-person sexuality, because we see them as different enough situations where making this leap that what people are interested in one automatically equates to what they're interested in another just seems like maybe going a step too far or at least something that we should empirically investigate. I love the food analogy that you use there because I think that makes this really easy to understand. You know, for example, when I look at food porn, you know, I'm going to look at the cheese pies (laughs) or nachos or whatever. But then when I go out to an actual restaurant and order food, you know, maybe I'll get the salad instead, right? Oh, so see, that's that's even better. That's even more on point. Yeah, that's perfect. I won't say anything other than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so you can be turned on by the cheese fries, but that doesn't mean that's actually what you're going to put in your mouth later, right? Because there's all kinds of decisions that factor into what we do in real life versus what we might do in fantasy or in porn. So I think that's a really smart way of, of framing this. So tell us a little bit about what you did in the study. Who did you study and what was it that you asked them to do so that you could look at how fantasy, porn, and behavior all intersect and diverge? Yeah, absolutely. So the way we ended up doing the study really harkens back to how Sari and I were conceptualizing things when we were trying to make sense of what we wanted to study. Where we were we were talking about pornography use, fantasy, and in-person sexuality. And we were ourselves using circles, representing each as different spaces when we were drawing things out for each other. And all of a sudden, at some point, it dawned on us that this might be a really powerful tool as well for participants if we wanted to ask them to show us how overlapping their interests were across these three contexts. So what we ultimately ended up doing was bringing 30 participants into our lab for in-person interviews where we actually gave them tablets where, and we had a lot of programming help with this from one of the collaborators on the project, Jude Pinto, where we, we had participants working with digital circles representing porn, 
fantasy and in-person sexuality. And participants were able to make these circles larger or smaller to represent how many interests they had or how strong these interests were for each of these spaces. So for example, if a participant felt like they had a lot of different interests or really strong interests for pornography, for example, they could make that circle larger. If they felt like maybe they don't fantasize very much or they have a really limited set of fantasies, they could make the circle smaller. And then we asked participants to position these circles as more or less overlapping, depending on how similar or different they felt like their interests were across these different spaces or contexts. So of these 30 participants, we really wanted to make sure that our sample was gender and sexually diverse. So 15 of our participants were heterosexual and cisgender, and 15 of our participants were either not cisgender or not heterosexual. I guess the only other thing I'll mention is that rather than just giving participants one diagram and map asking them to map all of their sexual interests across porn, fantasy, and in-person sexuality, we gave them a diagram first where we asked them to focus more on sexual actions or behaviors that they were interested in, and then a separate diagram where we asked them to focus on attractions and interests related to gender and or sex, and then a third diagram where we asked them to focus on interest and attractions they have that are related to partner number or how many people they're interested in being with, both in relationships, individual encounters, and across time. And then we had participants do one final diagram where they were mapping all of their interests across all of those different dimensions that I just named. So it sounds like you collected a ton of data, a lot of very in-depth information on each participant. We did. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I know some people will look at this and they'll say, well, 30 people, you know, oftentimes you get the critiques for smaller sample sizes. But when you're doing this in-depth interview process and getting these massive amounts of information, it's logistically very hard to get extremely large samples. So, you know, there is this trade-off usually in the research where there's the consideration of sample size and then how much information you're going to obtain. But anyway, you have this very large amount of information for each of these individuals. So what did you find in terms of the overlap that people reported between pornography, fantasy, and in-person interest? You know, to what degree are these things distinct versus overlapping? And does it depend on which aspect of sexuality you're talking about? And I know there's a lot in that question. So, you know, feel free to break it up in parts. Maybe just talk about how much overlap there is first. Yeah, absolutely. And if I forget any piece of that question, feel free to cue me and I'll totally circle back around. So what we found overall was that interests were both branched and coincident. So what I mean by that is the average pattern of circle overlap across all of our diagrams was there was some overlap across pairs of contexts or spaces. And then for each of these contexts, there's a good chunk that was not overlapping with the others. And then, so across those dimensions that I named, so actions and behaviors, gender, sex, and partner number, we found that the amount of overlap across pornography use and in-person sexuality was the smallest. So in other words, people seemed to have the most distinct interests when it came to those two contexts, with fantasy overlapping with each of those a fair degree more. In terms of which dimensions showed the most overlap, People had more overlapping interests for gender sex across all three of those contexts compared to actions and behaviors and to partner number. But we were still seeing something around like 50% overlap, 50% distinction, even for gender sex. And the numbers were considerably lower for actions, behaviors, and partner number. So suggesting that people do seem to still have quite a bit of distinct interests across porn, fantasy, and in-person sexuality, regardless of which dimension we were talking about. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that so succinctly because I read your paper before this and there's a lot in there about all of these different things and a lot of different diagrams and data, but I think you distilled that totally. all perfectly well. I'm curious about something you said where you mentioned that there's less overlap for porn and in-person behavior than there is for some of these other areas. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to why that might be the case. Because I think oftentimes people make this assumption that, you know, what you're turned on by in porn is a reflection of what you really want to do sexually in bed with another person or with multiple people. So why do you think there's less overlap between the porn and in-person behavior compared to, say, fantasy? Yeah, I get that question so much just when I'm trying to explain this research to my friends and also from other sex researchers when I've presented this work at conferences where I, I think it's a I think it's a really intuitive question. Like why is what we might watch, read, listen to and enjoy different from what we might be interested in doing in person? And I think one starting point might be to think about other forms of media that we engage with where I, you know, I, I'm personally not a horror movie guy. Like, I, have, I have a really hard time with scary movies. I just avoid them like the plague. But I have plenty of friends who would love to watch a movie where the protagonist is being chased around with a knife, who would have no interest themselves in person of being chased around with a knife. So clearly, like at, at least on that level, what people find visually arresting or engaging or enjoyable to watch doesn't necessarily coincide with what they're interested in doing in person. And then I think the, the really interesting question that our data doesn't fully speak to is what the specific mechanisms are. So like, why is it in each case for each interest that people might be interested in something for porn, but not for in person or vice versa? One quick thought I have is that the way that online spaces for certain kinds of pornography are organized are relatively distinct from the way we might think about the interests that we have in person. So if you were to go onto a online pornography site like Pornhub and look through the, the categories that they have available, the way that those categories are grouped just intuitively don't seem like they map onto the way people think about the people they're interested in being with in person to a large extent. Though obviously there's some overlap too, and we totally see people with quite overlapping interests across porn and in person. What our data is showing is that on average, those two contexts have relatively discrete interests. Absolutely. I think one interesting thing is like, we often also think, well, another person is kind of a limiting factor in a way, quote unquote, like what you can do with an another person is partly controlled by what they're willing to do with you. So that matters. But what you can see online or read also is limited by what's been created. So on one hand, you know, they say anything you search, you can find, but it's still been created in specific ways. And some of our other research um, with other grad students, past and present, like Sarah Chadwick, we've found that, you know, people don't aren't always finding the things they want. They're sort of able to find the best they can and deal with that in the best they can to enjoy it. But it's not necessarily always the case that what's available for porn is unconstrained in its own way as well. And then finally, one other point I want to make to and add to Aki's great answer is that we've been thinking a lot about all these dimensions. So we talk about porn, in-person, and fantasy and what they share and what they don't share. And one of the big things I think, like we obviously know this, but I do feel like it gets lost, is there's all these other like sensory parts of in-person sex that aren't a part of porn, whether it's porn you listen to, whether it's porn you watch, whether it's porn you read. And so there's just like a whole, I mean, it sounds so obvious, but there's this whole possible menu of things that matter that you can experience that you can feel when you're with another person that you can't with 
porn or vice versa. There's all sorts of visual angles you can see, or it's light, you know, or you're, you know, you hear sounds and this and that, that you don't have in person. So they're really two really different contexts in lots of ways. Yeah. And I appreciate both of you sharing all of that. It gives me so many different things to think about. First, I have to mention though that Aki, you're the the master of analogies here. I like what you mentioned about the movies versus real life behavior. You know, like for example, I'm I'm not the biggest horror person either, but you know, I'll see the new Scream movie when it comes out, but I am not going to go to a haunted house in person because I don't like to you know, I don't want the shit scared out of me. Like that's just not <laughs> appealing to me. You know, I can, if I can watch it safely in the context of my own home on my TV screen and have my security blanket and cat nearby, like that's fine, but I don't actually want to go out in person and, <laughs> you know, have people chasing me around. But so in talking about some of these other things, I think you make a really good point that, you know, there are constraints for all of these different ways in which we might express our sexuality, right? So porn, you pretty much only have what's available to choose from. And so it might not necessarily reflect what you're really interested in or turned on by. But now that leads me to the question of, well, what's going to happen with the rise of virtual reality pornography or can become more customizable? And so to the extent that you can make porn a better match for what your sexual interests are, will porn then become a more accurate or closer reflection of what it is that people are doing in real life. Just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Oh, that's such a great question. And before I answer it, I'll just say that so far, every time I've given an analogy, you've taken it and made it better. So there's also that. Um, okay. So let's see. I think, I think what's tricky is with the rise of VR porn and interactive environments, what's tricky is I can, I can certainly imagine the ability to create spaces that most closely map or match the in-person ecology that people might be used to. And at the same time, the ability to create more spaces that branch even more substantially from it. Mm -hmm. So I, I certainly think that we could see both more porn and more, yeah, I guess like you could call it more interactive sexual spaces through VR that coincide more with people's in-person interest as as well as the exact opposite. So I think it's a fascinating question. And I'm really curious to see what happens in the future. And I think also there's there are some sort of contexts like cam sex or sex work or paid sex where you can more closely approximate perhaps like you know by paying for what you want and giving someone instructions. So that already sort of does exist in its own way. And again I think one of the reasons we talked about in-person sex and not real life sex is that it's more like it's all real life. You know, people talk about like, if you're online, like that's still real life. Like it's, yeah. it's still time. You're still engaging in it. And so it's more just that like, these are, have some overlaps and, and then have some, some branchiness to it, these different contexts. But yeah, like Aki, I can see that. I, and as you're asking, I can see definitely the potential for things to sort of like, verge in different kinds of trajectories that bring up sort of new kinds of questions as well around these things. Yeah, I think you both make really great points about this. And, you know, as I'm thinking more about this question I asked, I'm also thinking about my research on sexual fantasies where, you know, sometimes people are fantasizing about something that would be totally impossible for them to do in real life. The thought of it turns them on. And so maybe in a VR porn world, they could customize the porn to match that fantasy scenario, but it's still something that's never going to be reflected in in-person sex because it's just 
a virtual impossibility. Maybe it takes place on a different planet or with a, you know, different uh, alien species, right? So, you know, we know that, again, there are always going to be these constraints. But I do think that that would be interesting to explore going forward as people develop more and new and different ways to express their sexuality, how some of these things might get pushed around a little bit. And you're right, I could see the potential for maybe VR porn to create greater overlap between both fantasy and in-person sexual activity. So lots of things to explore there in the future. So we have much more to discuss, including the implications of all of these findings for better understanding our own and our partner's sexuality. But first, a quick break for word from our sponsors. If you're recording a podcast, you need the most reliable and high-quality recording program out there, which is why I use Zencaster. It's easy to use, and you're going to love the results. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code, SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. Looking to boost your bedroom game? Promescent is here to help you have better sex. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. They also have a female arousal gel, lubricants, Vitaflux supplements, and so much more. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. I'm speaking with sex researchers Ake Garmazano and Dr. Sari Van Anders. Now, in thinking about everything we've been discussing, something I'm curious about is the extent to which, and this builds on my previous question, the extent to which our sexual configurations might change over time, right? We know, for example, that as people age, they're likely to accumulate more sexual experience. For example, they might watch more porn, they might engage in more solo and more partnered sexual activity. And in my own research on sexual fantasies, I've seen that people in different age groups tend to have different types of fantasies, suggesting the possibility that our fantasies might evolve over the course of our lives. So when you're measuring something like sexual configurations, how do you think of it? Is it just sort of like a snapshot in time as to where things stand right now? And how do we account for change and fluidity? in all of this. So any thoughts there as to, you know, how we reflect fluidity in all of these configurations we're talking about? Yeah, we do have participants telling us about past and present or ongoing. So we're able, with SCT, people are able to indicate in their configurations, past configurations, present, they can use sort of as many diagrams as they need. They can also do fluidity in context. So some people talk about, you know, like if I'm in this kind of place, then I might have these kinds of interests or, and so on. And people also, what was interesting, and we didn't really think of this in advance, but people tell us about their ideals as well, like where they're trying to get to. So some people would like to be more open, for example. We usually, you know, in SCT, I argue that like the most progressive sexuality is just one that recognizes, knows itself, knows its own situatedness. I don't think there's any particular configuration that's more progressive or liberatory than any other. But some people still have that idea for themselves or they, they'd like to explore or things like that to maybe so they can better understand what their configuration is. I think even the idea that we would somehow know 
what our configurations are as if there's some set thing and not sort of dependent on what the opportunities are for us is a kind of a limited way of thinking about it. Although obviously many of us have given a lot of thought to our own sexualities and genders and partner numbers and so on. So yeah, so with SCT, we can get at fluidity and we can get at that past, present, future even, and we can get at like different contexts and so on. And, and so in the paper that we've been discussing, you were looking at sort of what their present configuration is, but you also collected data on the past and the ideal? For this one, we didn't do past and present. This one is more of a snapshot. So that's the nice thing about SCT. We can do snapshots or not. Yeah, we definitely went more snapshot by design for the study where especially with these diagrams where participants were more constrained to working with a circle that they could resize and reposition. We didn't, unfortunately, have as much space to allow participants to indicate which interest had shifted over time, or as Sari pointed out, which interests they'd like to get to. Though we certainly had participants during our interviews share really rich anecdotes around that. I remember one participant in particular talking about how They noticed themselves initially positioning porn farther away from in-person sexuality, partially out of hope or want rather than reality. And then upon realizing that adjusting the position of that pornography use circle. So even though it wasn't something that we were directly looking to capture, we certainly have some qualitative data that speaks to that point. And then I guess my only other thought related to fluidity in the present study was, you know, so even though we weren't focusing on change over time, I think what's really interesting is when you think about if, if sexual interests change over time, what, what, what are some of the things that are driving those shifts? And, you know, so some of Lisa Diamond's work will look directly at to what extent sexual fluidity is tied to context. And so with this study, we're looking at interest in porn, interest in fantasy and in-person sexuality. And as Sari pointed out, these are three very different contexts with different constraints. So in a way, I see this study, even though it was just one point at time, at directly getting at some of some of what might drive or contribute to fluidity. Yeah. Oh, and as you both are talking about all of this, it's giving me so many research ideas because I think there are so many fascinating things to explore here. And one might be, you know, when you're asking people to construct the overlap between fantasy porn and in-person behavior, I'm wondering to what extent the overlap that they give you might be moderated by, say, feelings of sexual shame about pornography, right? We know that pornography is something that is very heavily stigmatized in in many ways. And we know that people can feel a lot of shame about their sexual fantasies. And so maybe people who feel more of that shame or anxiety about those things will intentionally create less overlap with their in-person behavior. So that could be something that would be interesting to explore in future work. And I think it would be also really fascinating to do a comparison of, you know, that overlap for how things are in the present and then what your ideal is. And, you know, do you want more overlap in some areas or do you want less overlap? I don't know. I love this model. And I think there are so many interesting ways that you can like further explore and and relate that to other aspects of the sexual self. Yeah, absolutely. I now just want to do some serious brainstorming because this is giving me ideas as well. Yeah, even just that idea of to what extent does sexual shame or attitudes towards pornography in particular moderate how closely or how overlapping you're placing that relative to in-person sexuality. I, I could totally see it being that people intentionally move that circle further away if they feel more negatively towards porn. I could also see it being the case that if 
someone's porn interests are further away from their in-person interests. That instead is what's driving people to feel more negatively towards it, where they, they might feel, you know, just because in general, sexuality is expected by a lot of people to coincide, which is something that Sari covers really well in SCT in a, in a lot of different ways. Just because we expect sexuality to coincide, it may be that when people have more branched interests, they, they tend to feel negatively about the spaces that are branched. So there's a lot of possibilities there and so many things that I want to follow up on too. Yeah, you're never going to run short of research ideas studying in this area. Now, something else I'd like to discuss is what are the implications of all of these findings in terms of how we think about sexual orientation and also how we study it? So, for example, there are a lot of sex researchers who use genital arousal measures to assess sexual orientation. And they look, for example, at how engorged the penis or vagina becomes when people are shown certain types of porn, and then they use that as a gauge of what someone's true sexual orientation is. In fact, I've heard some sex researchers go as far as to say that genitals don't lie. And some of them seem to be really convinced that genital responses to researcher-selected porn are the most valid measure of sexual orientation. So what are your thoughts on that specifically? And do you think that we might be over-relying on that methodology to try and understand and measure sexual orientation? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. And I think, again, as I, I think I mentioned briefly earlier, studying orientation is really difficult when you're trying to capture continuous live measures of what people are interested and attracted to. So it's it's really tough, period. And I'll say that to start. I'll also say that one thing I find really interesting is that in a lot of those studies that are using pornography and then measuring genital arousal to that porn, they'll often refer to the porn as sexual stimuli as opposed to pornography. And, you know, it's impossible for me to know intent there, but it, it almost feels like trying to leave the fact that it's porn behind when porn comes with a lot of context, like those stimuli are coming from somewhere. And, you know, so it's like, we're, we're working on other studies now where we're focusing in a, a little bit more on sexual norms for these different spaces. And what's considered normative in porn is so different than what's considered, well, I won't get ahead of myself. We're, like, we're at least seeing that what people consider normative in porn is very different from what people consider normative in in-person sexuality. And I, I'm not sure that just because you're in the context of a research lab, you can entirely leave the, the porn behind. So how does this intersect with the work that we're doing here? It's We're seeing that what people say they're interested in for porn is relatively distinct from what they're interested in in person to a really substantial degree for gender sex-related phenomena as well as other phenomena tied to sexuality as well. So based on that, it seems like Relying entirely on pornographic stimuli in a lab to measure sexual orientation is at least to some extent fraud, or just at least not telling the entire story. I'll leave it there. I feel like Sari might have some gems to add here too, or maybe not. No, I mean, I think it's like, like Aki says, it's fraud. It can be difficult. People are trying to do their studies and there's so much each of our studies leaves out too. As you were saying, what about the fluidity over time, which Aki said we sort of get at a little bit, but not much for this one study. But yeah, I do think that sort of since orientation itself is branched, even arousal itself is only one aspect of it. And arousal to porn, I think as people will tell us, but also as this research is showing, or it definitely seems like a leap and one we need to be 
pretty cautious and careful about and about what it can tell us, um, the reach of it. And one thing I hadn't really even been thinking about is so much of the pornography is really focused on what we in the lab, like in an SCT call eroticism. So sort of pleasure or like physical and bodily and genital pleasure and very little on nurturing connections. And there's many people who tell us that's an important part of sexuality for them. And for many of us who've been sexual, even if it, it isn't sort of normative to say, because maybe you're a very masculine person or a man, it's still that nurturing connection is a big part of sex for many, many people. And it's usually not there in most porn, which is not to criticize porn. That's what it is. But so when you're looking at arousal, you're looking at arousal to sort of this one aspect of it, this one dimension of it that's missing, not missing, but that doesn't have this other aspect that, is important for many people's in-person sexuality, whether they're demisexual or whoever they are, whether they don't have access to that label, that's not the way they would describe themselves. So I do think that using porn in labs for sexual stimuli is interesting and informative, but the question is, what is it interesting in terms of, and what is it informative about? Yeah, I think those are all really important points. And it goes back to what we were discussing earlier about how, you know, when we're talking about the overlap between fantasy and porn and in-person activity, when we're talking about porn specifically, there are limitations and constraints on what we can find there. And then further, when you're going into a research lab and the researchers have handpicked the porn clips that they're going to show, then you've got this further constraint that's placed on it. And then you have participants coming in who may want and be turned on by very different things that might not be reflected in that porn at all. And we know that in these genital arousal studies, there's a very high percentage of participants who don't register any genital arousal at all to the stimuli that they're watching. And I've always had questions about why is this number so high? I think in some studies I've seen it's as many as one in three men in genital arousal studies show not enough arousal for them to have any usable data. And I think a lot of people previously interpreted that as, well, it's an anxiety-inducing situation or something, and then you know they're not showing arousal for whatever reason, but it might be because what they're turned on by just isn't reflected in the erotic stimuli. And so that makes it you know, pretty difficult to use this as a very broad measure to make sweeping generalizations about people's sexuality. So I agree with you that it's certainly telling us something, but it's not the full picture. Now, I'm also curious about the implications or takeaways here for the average person. So for example, in your paper, you mentioned how better understanding the ways in which fantasy, porn, and in-person sexuality diverge well, that can help people to move away from making automatic assumptions about what their partner is really into if, say, you happen to stumble on your partner's porn search history. So how can these findings better help people to understand their own and their partner's sexuality? That's a great question, Justin. And yeah, we do mention that. And there there are some really great examples in the existing body of literature research on on pornography use, especially in the context of couples where occasionally you'll have people talking about how their partners have made assumptions about what they're interested in in person based on what they know about what their partner is interested in in porn um, where you actively have participants in these studies indicating like hey no that's not the case like i wish my partner wasn't wasn't leaping to that conclusion so yeah maybe the takeaway is instead of treating yeah like the example you gave of seeing someone's search history as as fact about what this person must really be interested in in person instead treating that like a potential conversation starter where 
You know, um, again, in our study, we had average patterns of people having relatively distinct interests across porn and in-person sexuality, but lots of variation across participants, where for some people, their interests were really coincident across those two contexts, and for other people, their interests were really or almost entirely branched. So instead of treating that search history as as necessarily indicative of what someone's interested in, potentially using that as a place to start a conversation. Yeah, yeah. and I think that Aki has this um, great example too, like people who, yeah, see something that they don't have in their partner's search history and then feel bad that maybe that person really wants that. But maybe that's a visual cue that arouses them in porn. And it could be because that's what arouses them in porn. It could be that's because all the great things about in-person sex aren't there and there needs to be this sort of like extra part there. Um, so yeah, I think, um, and the opening a conversation I think is really useful. One of the things I talk about in SCT is some different kinds of normativity. So many people know about heteronormativity or cis normativity. And I also talk about this alignment normativity, the idea that thinking everything should be coincident actually ends up causing harms for people themselves thinking like, why can I like this? And why do I like that? And, or why does, if my partner likes this, that must mean they don't like me. And I think that the communication part is so key in thinking these things through a little more. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as somebody who studies sexual fantasies, it's also making me think too about when you're communicating about your fantasies with a partner, it's important to make clear whether the fantasy you're communicating is just a fantasy, or if it's also a desire, right? Because many people make that automatic assumption that, well, you said you fantasize about this, therefore that's something that you want to do, but that might not necessarily be the case. So I think it does have a lot of important implications here for how we can have healthier, more productive communications about sex with our partners. And then also just the model itself, I think, can potentially lead people to have better self-understanding in terms of how all of their different sexual interests come together. And there's not one right or correct sexual configuration. You know, these things can be combined in endless ways. And that's great. And understanding your own configuration, you know, to the extent that that gives you this better level of self-understanding and acceptance is ultimately another positive thing. Now, we're running short on time, but one other topic I just wanted to get into briefly with the both of you is how we can do better sex research. So you recently co-authored another paper that lays out how we can do better diversity-focused research on human sexuality. So I'm just wondering if each of you can share maybe one or two practical tips that we can take from your work and your ideas about how we can make sex research better and more inclusive going forward? Oh, wow. Uh, that is a huge question. And I'll just take a really gentle stab at that before passing it off to Sari, who is so much more experienced doing sex research than me. And I think most of what I will share are things that I learned from her. So one of the best things about being in Sari's lab and doing and doing research with her has been how much how much emphasis we place on collecting diverse samples where one of the one of the one of the pieces of SCT that I love the most is how much it how much it validates the approach of doing research from the margins where you're, you're paying attention to the people who have been minoritized, who are often offering the best perspectives on phenomena that people will often study mostly among gender and or sexual majority participants. So I just feel like our data has been so much richer because we focused on diversity. And also just to be clear, focusing on diversity doesn't always just mean collecting data from gender and sexual minorities, but from just like just the full spectrum of people with respect to gender and sexuality. So I'll stop there. Sari's probably got a lot 
a lot more wisdom to offer here, so I'll leave it to her. Well, thank you. And basically, this is why I have grad students. They can say nice things about me on podcasts. So, <laughs> so the, the paper that you're referring to, we published a paper called Overempowered because our diversity research, of course, diversity includes people who are minoritized and people who are majoritized. And But so much of our critical methods in thinking about diversity is really about how to think about minoritized folks and how to empower them. And we started realizing, and a few other people have written about related to this too, and we, we talk about the ways these methods that are built for empowering minoritized folks actually end up over-empowering majoritized folks. And, you know, I, you can see that in lots of places on Twitter, in social media, in, in, in in-person life, and so on, where there's an appropriation of things that are meant to empower minoritized folks. So I think one of the things, like the way we broke it down is we absolutely need to attend to minoritization. We need to make sure our methods aren't further minoritizing folks as best we can. We need to avoid aiming for perfect and just aim for better, just always better. So by paying attention to the ways our research can make minoritized folks feel included, feel situated, feel seen, feel able to communicate their authentic beingness, that's important. And then at the same time, we also need to be thinking about how our research can communicate to majorities that they are situated, that they exist in a broader landscape that is not just them. They don't occupy all of it, even though they occupy so much of it or the center in ways that allow them to grow and learn as well. So sometimes people say they come to our studies and leave them with like new understandings of themselves or of diversity or even new terminologies. We need to think about also the ways that majorities will always kind of try to take or hold power. Hashtag not all majorities, I guess, except that's kind of what majorities need. <laughs> but so how do we also design our research so that we're able to sort of resist a little bit the way majorities will kind of try to take it over, if that makes sense. We've literally, in one of in that paper, talk about how people came in and kind of tried to skew some of the research to be really anti-trans. So I guess those tips would be like, we need both of those in mind. And sometimes people end up focusing only on majorities. Oh, they won't like this language or only on min- minoritized folks. And how do we, when we're doing research that includes both, which is really valuable, we get all sorts of new insights by including both and, and all the multifaceted perspectives within those. But how do we design our research to be, like, how do we do that thoughtfully to sort of maximize the, ex- the positive experiences of everyone? <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all of that. And thank you for this fascinating discussion more broadly. It was a pleasure to have both of you here and to learn from you. So can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about both of you and your work? Are you, for example, on the social media? Do you have a lab website where people can go to read up on some of the research? Yeah. So a lot of our research is on academia.edu. It's not always updated, but you can also go to my lab website. So if you just search, probably the easiest is if you just search Sari Van Anders, I'm the only one in the world. And my lab website is one of the first things that comes up. We have a whole page on SCT. It's not pretty. We're trying to redesign it, but it has the original theory paper. It has a zine. It has cartoon videos that are very accessible, a workbook, and some of the other projects we've talked about. There's information about me, Sari Van Anders, and information about Aki Gormazano and, and his CV. And we're also both on Twitter, both, I think, with our our regular names. So you can also find us there. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being here as well, Aki. Thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.